Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Great to see you all. Uh, Thank you so much for being here today. If it's your first Sunday, uh, like Ellen said, welcome to our church. Glad you guys are joining today for one of our services. So um, glad you guys could be here. We are in a series right now in the... um, uh, books of First and Second Samuel, basically one book split into two parts, which is why we're doing this. Uh, the books of First and Second Samuel are part of the history books of the Old Testament, and um, we are making some pretty good headway now. We're almost to the point where we're going to switch into Second Samuel here in a few short weeks. Uh, but today we're in First Samuel 20. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, please feel free to do that now, or a phone app if you have it. This will be on screen here in just a second. Um, but two points of recap. Uh, to catch you guys up to speed and to, or just to remind you of uh, where we are and the importance kind of of uh, some interpretational principles that we're kind of holding dear uh, throughout this series. So the first is a contextual reminder that we're in this section of the book now and really the greater Old Testament where we have these things called, we might affectionately call them, stories from the chase. So uh, it's kind of a tale of two kings. King Saul is chasing King uh, David, or David who's becoming king at this time because God has acknowledged him as king and asked Samuel as uh, kind of a prophet and priest figure to anoint David. Uh, Saul, though, realizes that uh, the, the kingdom's kind of being torn from him. That's actually a phrase that Samuel used to Saul a few weeks ago, if you were here for that. Uh, But it's uh, caused a lot of jealousy and envy in Saul. He um, realizes that everything David touches is turning to gold. He can sense that God is blessing him in in, in a way, physically and spiritually, more than him. And so he has this envy. He wants to hold it close. And uh, so a big part of Saul's story arc is um, not really ending well, and it's not going to end well for him. A lot of you guys might know the story and how he dies at the end of this book. We'll get to that uh, in a few weeks. But um, that's basically kind of where we're at. We have, and it's, I kind of like, in one sense, we're going to see a lot of theology in that as it, as it points us to Jesus, and I'll talk about that here in a second. But um, on a human level, it's, uh, it's hard not to see yourself in Saul, probably for most of us, all of us certainly to a degree, but maybe many of us even right now, just to hear that and to think, you know, how hard it is when someone else is better at us than somebody or they're succeeding more than we are. They may have started younger than us or with less experience, but all of a sudden they're just on this kind of, you know, ascent or arc upwards that just far, far surpasses ours. And that's a real thing, right? Envy is a real thing. Jealousy is a real thing. Um, wanting ourselves to be king of or queen of our own universe um, is a real thing, and, and sin lies at the heart of much of that, if not all of it. And so um, a lot of that is uh, important to mention because God is going to come into all of that. He's going to speak into it. He's going to um, ultimately come into the world of it and wear it around his neck and die for it. And so if we see ourselves in Saul, the antagonist of stories like this, that's bad news, but also there's good news that God doesn't um, shy away from it or treat it as us, as taboo, like we're kind of untouchables, but he uh, loves us even in spite of that and, and, and works for our humility and our brokenness and our thankfulness and worship when he dies for our sins. So, um, but the contextual side to this though, uh, that aside, the contextual side is just to understand that David is being chased. Uh, by Saul. And um, if you know nothing else about the book, that's kind of in one sense all you have to know to understand uh, today's story. The second, and I've kind of been already already alluding to this maybe a bit, uh, is this interpretational principle of shadow to substance. This is actually a biblical uh, idea. These are biblical words from the book of Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, The idea here being that the Old Testament is full of shadows or types or glimpses or foreshadowings of New Testament realities. Ultimately, Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised 
but other realities as well that kind of orbit around that, that ultimate kind of pinnacle or climax of the biblical story. So when you read stories like this, and in one sense we're, we're reading the Bible backwards, we're, we're reading it maybe from left to right, but we're interpreting the book from right to left. We're seeing the end is informing the beginning. The, the beginning means nothing without Christ who would come later to give it meaning and to be the ultimate substance or reality that casts that shadow backwards into salvation history. So um, if you've been here, you've, you've been seeing us practice this and do this over and over again. But for those of you who might be new this week or, or for a couple of weeks now, just, uh, or just new to the Bible, understand this is actually a biblical thing we're doing. We're kind of, t- we're, we're following and taking the Bible's cue here in reading the Bible in a biblical way in a way that Jesus does, and the Apostle Paul, and John, and James, and everyone who writes about these things from a New Testament perspective. All right, so today we're going to get reacquainted with Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son, David's friend. So kind of like, even just that alone, you know, if you know a bit more about these people, uh, Jonathan's an interesting figure. Uh, we met him a few chapters ago, but in a lot of ways, today's passage is what a lot of people remember about him, where we see the depths of his love for his friend David, even at the disapproval of his father, Saul. So he's this, it's kind of almost like a, a triangular thing happening here. Uh, Jonathan stands in between his father uh, and uh, his, his friend David. He, uh, he's a son of uh, the king, uh, and yet he still loves this guy that his father hates. And so there's just really interesting dynamics here uh, going, going on. Now, the first half of this passage, we're going to focus on verses 28 to 42. The first half of the passage to set up our reading has to do with an agreement between Jonathan and David. So David's convinced Saul wants to kill him. Jonathan at this point isn't so sure. So part of him's kind of like, my dad wouldn't do that, really. He wouldn't be that kind of guy or that kind of king. So he's a little bit hesitant to fully buy in uh, to his dad's intent to kill his best friend. And so their plan to find out uh, which it is is that there's a king's feast that David is invited to, uh, Saul's feast. And at that feast, Jonathan would say to his father Saul, David's not here. He had to go back home to Bethlehem for the weekend or something like that. And then at that point, if Saul got angry, they would know his intent to kill David because Saul would be like, well, that was my chance, one of my chances to kill him. He's not here. He's supposed to be. And so his anger would kind of give way to his intent to kill David. But if Saul said, ah, no biggie, then they would know there was no current threats. But in order for Jonathan to communicate the outcome to David, they devised this weird plan about shooting arrows toward David, who would be hiding in a field at this time, and then send a boy out to get the arrows close to David, to which Jonathan would either yell, uh, the arrows are beyond you, which is code for Saul is angry, run for your life, or the arrows are on this side of you, which was code for you're in the clear. So now, if if you're wondering why that weird, random, elaborate plan just to communicate a simple message is there, uh, and you're wondering, why not just tell him? Like, you could just go and tell him. You know, why why this plan with the arrows and the boy and the code message? Um, If you're wondering all of that, you're not alone. Uh, and, and, you're, and it's actually part of the point, because remember, the Bible is interested in theology, not just history. The Bible's not just a matter-of-fact book, it's a symbolic book. And so these things, these parts of the story are here to, to tell us about God, and to tell us about the gospel, and salvation, and about us, in God's redemptive plan, and, and so forth. And so oftentimes, communicating that theology happens by way of story, and by way of symbol. So more on that later. 
But for now, we pick up in verse 28 with Jonathan talking to his father Saul about David's absence at the feast. So, verse 28. So, Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town of my brother and my brothers ordered me to go there. If I found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he's not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger on that second day of the feast. He did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. They kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace for you have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Okay, so another story from the chase. So if you've been here for a few weeks, you know, we often read these stories and end with a um, kind of a, well, that's clear as mud, right, kind of, uh, kind of moments, especially when we ask the question, what does this mean? And what does it mean for me? What's it mean about God? Uh, it's not super clear all the time, uh, but Christ helps and uh, Jesus helps, and we'll get to that. So to look at this passage today, uh, through the lens, I want to look at this passage through the lens of Jonathan. There's multiple ways to do it. All of them could be right. Uh, but I want to look at it today through the lens of Jonathan, because I think this is kind of uh, peak Jonathan narratives here. And so we're going to move on from him after this uh, week and, and kind of almost be done with him. But so through the lens of Jonathan, I, when you look at it th- through him, it yields a number of things uh, theologically. And, and I'll categorize all, all of them into two points today. Uh, if you would like to follow along or look ahead, it's on your sermon insert uh, in the worship folders, but um, this will be on screen here too. The, fir- the first is this. The first thing uh, that I think about and kind of get a sense for when I read this passage is Pilate in the New Testament. The, the Pilate is the Roman governor who oversaw Jesus' trial and who also said about Jesus something very similar to what Jonathan says here about David. So uh, to quote from Matthew 27, Uh, is where it says, what shall I do then, Pilate says this, with Jesus who is called Messiah, Pilate asked. The the people answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. 
And so what you see here in today's story in the Old Testament is kind of a whisper of, of this moment. Jonathan is playing the role of the sane advocate, uh, the one who's sniffing out the injustice of the moment and who's working for exoneration and peace and reason. Um, and so David then in, in this story is the Christ figure, as he so often is in these narratives. He's the literal, the literal ancestor of Jesus genealogically, but also, again, uh, symbolically. David then here is a signpost for um, what kind of king ultimately will come in his line in the future to replace him and, and fulfill stories like this. And so when you read a story like this, and I was actually referring to this to start, so it's not wrong to do this, um, but our initial instinct might be to see ourselves in the story, and we might say that this story reminds me of my life, uh, that there are elements here that have crossover with my past and or present, uh, whether it's being hated or condemned or afraid or unfairly treated or hopeless or depressed or, or you name it. There's a lot of feelings in this passage and things going on with David and Jonathan as well. There's, and so there might be a crossover here. And so all that might be true, and that's good. But the best news here isn't just that he helps us in those situations, but the way he helps us is by saying, I will come into the world to take on those things for you in your place. The Son of God will become hated. The Son of God will become condemned unfairly. The Son of God will become, in a sense, uh, hopeless, even though he isn't. He'll be afraid. He'll have, uh, th there'll be moments of fear, um, even though, in uh, sweating blood, uh, to refer to his time in the garden before he was arrested. So, as a human being, he experiences those things like we do, and ultimately to the point of death, so that we might be saved from the ultimate end games of those things, which is an eternal destiny away from our Creator. Now, what I like especially about 1 Samuel 20's spin in all of this is because uh, this is kind of like the story uh, going on here ahead of time, then Saul becomes a picture of the Jewish people who were accusing Jesus in Jesus' day. And in particular, you might remember the story of Caiaphas. So, we just preached the Gospel of John, was it last year this time, roughly? Uh, Caiaphas was the high priest in Jesus' day and who had that moment of um, unintentional prophecy. Everyone remember this? Where he like speaks beyond himself. It's this really cool moment in the Gospel accounts where in order to quell the people's angst over Jesus, that Jesus is going to cause a political uprising and Rome is going to come squash it. They're going to take away our temple and take away our land. All because this Jesus guy uh, is saying the things that he's saying and they're concerned. Uh, to that, Caiaphas says in the Gospel of John, you know nothing at all, uh, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Then John adds the commentary, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus would die for the nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So, Caiaphas is saying, don't worry, guys, we're going to kill Jesus, and after we kill him, your concerns about an uptick in Roman persecution will be quelled, our nation will be blessed, and life will go on. That's basically what, what he's saying. Um, in that sense, he will die for the nation. But do you see the unintentional prophecy, how his words are um, beyond what he's intending? And that's what, why John here says he didn't actually know what he was saying, or he knew what he meant, but God meant something more. Because Jesus did die for the nation, for the nation's sins, and the world's sins, 
Not in a political you know, or physical sense that Caiaphas was intending, but in a spiritual sense. And so God intended something more from, from his words. And as, as a short aside here on this, this is why, to go back to that shadow to reality or substance principle I was talking about, um, this is why it's so important to not simply ask the question, what did the human author mean? And then to draw meaning from that to ourselves. Because if we do that, we're not doing what God might be intending. We're not saying, well, God's meaning trumps human meaning. We're not looking for that deeper meaning that God is intending about his son. And so if Caiaphas here is a representative of all human authors of the Bible, the ultimate question is not what did they mean, and then to draw a line between their human meaning and their intent and our lives. The question is actually to bypass that often, uh, wholesale, and to say what did God mean that they even didn't mean, and where is Jesus in their intent and, and words. And so when you look at Samuel's writings here then in the Old Testament, that's why this becomes so important. Jesus can be intended by God even if it isn't by Samuel or by Saul or by David or by Jonathan or by McCall from last week if you were here uh, for that, David's wife, all right? So now to come back to the story then here, it's the same with Saul. Saul says about David to Jonathan in verse 31, as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And so, in one sense, Saul is just meaning this is a bloodline issue. As long as David is alive and he's starting to take the throne, Jonathan, you as my son will not get the throne. We're different families, different bloodlines. So as long as he lives, this kingdom won't be yours. That's basically in a physical sense what Saul is meaning. But in a spiritual sense, there's a deeper note to it. Saul is not speaking of his own accord here. He's speaking beyond himself. When applied to Christ, this is basically saying, unless Jesus dies, the ultimate son of Jesse, David's descendant, there is no kingdom, there is no spiritual benefit given to us. Uh, it reminds me of, of Hebrews 9, where uh, in the New Testament, where it says, in the case of a will... It is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. All right, so what he's actually saying here is he's talking about the, the essence of Christian salvation is like a will. Uh, will and covenant are the same Greek word, and so it's kind of a play on words. But uh, he's saying it's kind of like a will. It's, the, the will doesn't go into effect and benefits the beneficiaries, until the one who wrote it dies. There has to be a death in order for the New Testament to be a thing. It was even that way in the Old Testament, he says, where things were sanctified with blood uh, and so forth. And he draws a line between the blood of the sacrificial animals of the Old Testament and Jesus, saying those were shadows as well of the final reality here. Jesus had to die. There's no kingdom. There's no benefit. There's no closeness to God. There's no hope for eternal life, none of that without the death of the Son of God in our place. Because if we don't have that, we're still in our sins. And the only hope we have is hope for an eternal separation from God. And so he likens this to the New Testament and draws that line, uh, I think, between stories like this um, and the New Testament hope of, of the gospel. And so the theology there is rich. It, it helps us to see the, the main kind of plan A that is the cross, that is the death of Jesus. But 
There's also, I think, um, setting that aside for a second, there's also a warning here, I think, as well. And this is a common thing for Christians to do in, in extremes to the right and the left. Um, and I'll call it the, the danger of disassociating kingdom and cross. The idea of kingdom, God's kingdom, which is kind of a nebulous idea sometimes in the New Testament, admittedly. But to disassociate that with death, the death of God's son, the death of the ultimate king, to disassociate them leads to all kinds of dangers. On, on the right is things like Christian nationalism or talking about kingdom in a political sense or kingdom in a power sense. This is what it ends up leading to sometimes. Or the, the liberal counterpart um, would be kingdom in an interpersonal reconciliation sense. Uh, the idea that the gospel is just about us getting along. Uh, or kingdom in a diversity sense. Or kingdom in a let's just change the world together in a physical sense uh, mission. Uh, that'd be the, like the left-leaning liberal counterpart. But both extremes, right and left, uh, air theologically and pragmatically because they disassociate kingdom and cross. Uh, instead, what the Bible is saying is that the kingdom is Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not a stepping stone onto a shinier toy, onto something else, but it is Jesus' sufferings and glories. David's a whisper of it. Saul's words hint at it. But Jesus is the reality. The kingdom is something we receive, in other words, not create or work for. And it's received through God's sacrificial love for you and me. Hebrews 12 says this, Let's be grateful, Christians, for we've received a kingdom that cannot be changed or shaken or threatened. Uh, it's a kingdom from God given to us as a gift, not something we ourselves create with our good works or create with our political aspirations, or create with a power sense, but we actually receive it in weakness, and we receive it through the blood of Jesus Christ. So none can boast and none can flex, but we can as humble people as sinners receive that, that gift from him. Okay, sort of a digression there. Let me bring it back, all right? The, the second uh, angle here today is to see Jonathan not just as a pilot figure and all that flows from that, but Jonathan as a Christ figure, which then makes David as a picture of us. So Jonathan here is a clear go-between, right? Jonathan is the son of the king who is mediating and saving David from the wrath of his father. Uh, he, he is a friend of the one being threatened and attacked, all of which are shadows of what Jesus is and does for us just on a much higher level. But digging deeper into the details, we see that Jonathan isn't just a go-between, but he is a brunt-taking go-between, uh, the one who suffers on behalf of the one he's mediating for. So like a spear is thrown at him, so does, Je so does Jesus take nails in his hands and feet and a spear into his side after he dies for our sins. Like Jonathan um, has this angst and, uh, over all of this and doesn't eat, can't eat because he's in such distress over Saul's animosity towards David. So does Jesus fast for us on the cross and promises to not eat until he's raised from the dead and brought into his father's kingdom. And like Jonathan takes his father's wrath instead of David, so does Jesus take the father's wrath, God the father's wrath, in our place. 
And that last piece actually, well, all this together relates, but the last piece about, um, about wrath deterrence uh, is a sometimes uncomfortable uh, but significant part of Christian theology. Uh, this idea of deterring how Jesus died, and when he died, he had to deter the wrath of God away from sinners uh, onto himself. Um, but God's wrath is not like Saul's here. That's actually one point of clarification um, and, and difference. Saul's wrath is, is disordered, it's chaotic, it's sinful. Um, God's wrath is ordered, patient, and righteous. But it's still a problem for people who have evil in their hearts, like Jesus says we do. Uh, it's a problem for sinners. If wrath is coming against all evil, and if there's nothing we can do about it with our good works, like we can't do enough to, to deter it, the solution needs to be reconciliation with God by the hand of God. It has to be. It has to be wrath deterrence. Um, and, and stories like this in the Bible, the Old Testament, start to shape our understanding of this idea of what Jesus is going to do on the cross, what his death actually is theologically, not just historically, what he would come to do, how he would become king, how he would enact and bring a kingdom into the world that wouldn't crush us, but actually would crush him first so we can be saved. So how justice and mercy would be shown at the same time through, through the one Savior and peace offering, uh, Jesus Christ. And so it's actually, if you guys do like theology with, uh, in, uh, in your Bible, with your Bibles, um, so it's stories like this, not just words like propitiation in the New Testament, uh, which is a big theological word that means the same thing, wrath deterrence, basically, or Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he's dying on the cross? Uh, it's not just those ideas, it's stories like this in the Old Testament that also underscore this, this idea. This is where the theology comes from, is stories like the Passover lamb and stories like the mercy seat and stories like David and Jonathan and Saul, that Jesus would come in this line to fulfill these stories, wrath deterrence. In other words, uh, wrath is being deterred through Jesus, not canceled. Uh, it's actually good news that God is going to destroy evil, but bad news that it's in, inside of us. So the way he's able to do that without crushing us is by becoming human like us and dying in our place and Jesus saying, I will bear it, I will bear it. And, and all of that, again, it has to be by the hand of God. What I like about this doctrine is it starts to kind of unclench our fists from moralism because this isn't saying, if you live a good life, then wrath won't befall you in the end. Uh, it, it's saying, no, you already have done, we've already done like, you know, boatloads and boatloads more evil than, than what's required um, to deserve hell forever. And so it's not, you can be perfect the rest of your life. This doesn't, you can't undo this problem of evil in your heart. What's needed is at the hand of God to work for reconciliation. And the way that happens is by a wrath-absorbing, Jonathan-like, spear-taking, uh, father-to-son idea that happens in a perfectly righteous, pure way, not in this shadowy, sinful, impure way, but a perfect, a pure, spiritual way when Jesus dies on the cross and bears his Father's wrath in our place. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry, but we do have to cling to him in order to be saved. All right. The second piece here um, is we also see Saul's statement to Jonathan, you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame. You have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame. So think about Think about that in a theological sense. 
you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame. Like, if, this, if Jonathan is a picture of Christ here, what is that telling us theologically about him? <clears throat> well, it's telling us that Jesus sides with us. Like, every clause of this is so beautiful. It's a, it's a glimpse of Jesus saying, I'm on the side of sinners. But not just that, even to his own shame, he sides with us, and willingly so. Uh, Luke 18 says, for he, Jesus, will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. This is a huge deal, again, theologically, like the last piece we were talking about, because it means not only that he became shame in our place, but that he is taking our shame away. And, and, and in doing that, he must address what the cause of shame is in the first place. And, and the cause of shame in our lives and in the Bible is not just sin, though it certainly is. It's bigger than that. It's any kind of measuring stick, any kind of system of grading or rewarding or identity that's based on what you and I do or what we have or don't have. Like, shame comes from being told to do or be something at a really high level, failing, because we always do, then bearing the shame of that failure, the gap between what you actually did and what was told you should do. Like, that's where shame lives, like in the, in the, the, the distance between those two things. And so, the idea here is that Jesus takes away the top thing. Like, what, that's what grace means. There is no law over you anymore. There's no system of grading. There's no, you must do this, and then you will be whole. Then you will be a son or a daughter of the king if you just obey these commandments or obey what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount or go to church enough or make your prayers this long and, and substantial and, and weighty or, or whatever it is. It's usually spiritual things. That's why I'm saying it. But it could be anything in life. It could be, it could be your marital status, how many kids you have, where you work, uh, how good you're doing at work, how much money you make. I mean, it's the voice of this thing is always chattering in our ear, uh, the voice of the law, uh, the voice of systems and grading. But Jesus, when Jesus comes, when he dies on that cross, he destroys all of that, and he saves us by grace. He says, I'll save you in a way that you no longer have any kind of system of measurement over your heads because there can't be any shame where there's no law because there's nothing to fail at anymore. Like before God, if there's nothing to fail at and to measure yourself with, there can be no more shame. And of course, we still have shame because we don't understand the depths of the grace, right? But the solution is to understand the depths of the grace more. It's always bigger than you think and that I think. Uh, Romans 5.5 5 says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Notice the solution. What's the solution to shame? God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, not earned, not impressed, but given. You see all the gospel words in that idea? This is something, by the way, that the Bible never says about the law in the Bible or the commandments of God. It never says the commandments will never put you to shame. Not once. That's because they do. There's always a gap. And so the New Testament comes stage left in the great drama of salvation history 
kicks the former part off the stage by God's design and says, now it's by grace. This is why Romans 6.14 is one of the most important verses in the whole New Testament, which says, you Christian are not under law, but under grace. And therefore, if you keep reading, sin will no, no longer have mastery over you now because of that. Because, see, there's no gap. There's no, I haven't measured up. I've sinned this much. Jesus dies by saving you by love, by grace. And so shame starts to lose its grip. That's the only way you will not be shameful, you guys. If in any way you think your salvation is up to you, if in any way you think your life is based on what you do and your performance and how much you have or don't have, shame is, that's like fertilizer for shame. That is like the best fertilizer for shame. The only way out from guilt and shame is the grace of God, where, where God says, I love you not based on your works, but I side with you. Like Jonathan to David, I take your side. I side with you based on my love, not your impressiveness. I don't care about any of that. I love you just because I love you. And I'm going to show that by spreading my arms on a cross and taking the spear that Jonathan almost took, I'm actually going to take it as the ultimate son of the king dying in your place. And you see this at the end of the passage too, where Jonathan and David embrace and Jonathan reaffirms this covenant of friendship he has with David. He tells him to go in peace and tells the boy to take the weapons back to town. And I love the simplicity of all of that. Uh, it, it pictures us having a relationship with God based on the friendship and sacrificial love of Jesus. And the weapons of war are sent back to town uh, away from the battlefield, which is to say there's no more war with God anymore, just peace. God, by his own design, through his own son, has sent the weapons back to town, and now he's out in the field just embracing us uh, and, and, and kissing us and wiping tears from our eyes and embracing. The covenant with God is based on the ultimate Jonathan taking the brunt for us and embracing us. That's what this story means. Notice how it's not about you. See, what, if we're like David here in the story, then we bow to the ground uh, in, in adoration and thanks. We receive the covenant love of, of the friend. Uh, that's why Jesus is called the friend of sinners. Um, actually, mockingly so by religious people in the first century, but it's in the gospel accounts. But he's friend of sinners, friend of sinners. He's, fr he's a friend of people who are the worst, uh, even people like us, hellbound people, he, he is an advocate for us because he becomes like us and dies in our place. That's what Jonathan is picturing. That's the good news um, of, of this passage. And so to wrap this up then, um, I, I think once again, if you guys have been here for a few weeks, I've, I feel like I've closed uh, in, in so many words uh, this way, but I'll say it again. Um, we're, we're left with this idea that it's, it's too us-centric to say that the point of these stories is be like Jonathan and don't be like Saul. You know, as if it's just this kind of moralistic compass. Uh, most of us coming in here today, and I'm saying this to those of you who are Christians and those of you who are not Christians, most of us don't need a story like this to convince us of that. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I was about to go and throw a spear at my son until this story told me not to. Like, whoa, thank you, God. You know, like, we don't need that. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, we, we, we have an inner sense for, for the problem. And a lot of times the problem's out there, but more than that, it's in here. And that, that 
of course, we can go back and forth on and, and not see, and it's harder to understand the inside. Of course, it's more um, humbling and problematic, but, um, but regardless. We don't need a story like that to tell us, you know, not to run a spear through our kids. Uh, instead, the story exists for the sake of Christ. Th- that's, what, that's why this is here. Uh, the story exists for his sake. The story is about Jesus' friendship with sinners. The story is about Jesus' willingness to be put to open shame for you and me. Isn't that amazing? It's like God doesn't just say, I want to send my, I want to die and take, it's like God is taking his own bullet. But not just that, he's saying, I love you so much, I will be put to open shame. I will die naked on a cross uh, among criminals. I, I will take the eyes and the gaze of the bully, so shame will be taken away, they'll be taken away from us. I'll take the wrath. Uh, I'll be put in the space between what's required and what's actually done. I'll, even though I'm perfect and I have met the standard, I'll become like one who hasn't. I'll take all the shame. It's like whatever you've done and you're most shamed, ashamed about uh, in your life, sin-wise, uh, it's like Jesus became that. So uh, uh, even though he wasn't that, he became it on the cross. So there's no like fear over some future judgment of like, whoa, look what Chris did. I mean, that's like the worst thing ever, even though it is. It's like Jesus has already done, become worse, even though he hasn't done worse. He's become worse. And so there's no like shock and surprise, no shame in that regard. It's just crazy that God is willing to do this and willing to side with us like this. Not just side, but side in this manner. And so this story is about all of that. It's about how he deters his father's wrath away from us onto himself. It's about his sacrificial love and his promise that we're okay based on that love and and on his grace. And um, this last piece I'll um, close with. I like these words of Jonathan where he says, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. When when I read that, um, it sounds a lot like the different many of the different salvation events of the Old Testament, like Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, if you know that story, or the Exodus, how there's a speediness uh, to, to the deliverance, where, where, where God says quickly, or uh, the angel to Lot and his family, uh, quickly come up from the city before God's wrath is poured out on the town and, and, and they save them or help them escape. Or the unleavened bread idea to the Israelites, how quickly they came up out of Egypt, if you know that story, uh, there's many others. But here you see it as well. And, and I think um, the Bible is not shy about this. There is an urgency to the gospel. The, the, the idea is believe now, uh, quickly, escape from your sin. The time is short. Don't put it off. Don't look back like Lot's wife uh, and the Israelites in the desert. Um, look forward. Uh, believe in Jesus and disbelieve in yourself with haste. Believe in Jesus and distrust yourself with speed and haste is the idea because Jesus is the only way to be saved. The son of David, uh, you could say the spiritual reality and, and an heir behind Jonathan and the only one uh, that we have hope for reconciliation with God, deliverance from our sin, hope for eternal life uh, and relief from our shame and guilt is a Savior who loves us in spite of ourselves, sees everything about us and says, I'll take that on myself and I'm still going to put my armor on them 
and side with them and love them to hell and back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, uh, this story, for what it means for us, uh, and many like it here. These stories from the chase are ultimately about uh, Jesus, who is the ultimate son of the king, who is chased, the ultimate David. Um, So we are chased, we feel like we're chased, we are being chased, but the good news is not just that somehow in a light switch moment that won't be the case, but the good news is that God will become like the chased one in our place and so that we aren't anymore and that we're alleviated through the love, the sacrificial love, the sacrificial grace of, uh, of the King of Kings. And so, uh, God, thank you for how you look at us, what you see, and how tirelessly you are bent on siding with us and taking your own bullets in your own wrath um, so that evil can be destroyed and crushed, which is good, but we don't have to be uh, in the meantime. And so, uh, Jesus, you are everything. Um, God, we don't see that. I don't see that fully. Um, There's so much to grow and so much to know, so much more to know about your love and grace. Uh, We think we've graduated from it, but we haven't. But help us, God, to continue to grow and to know the depths of the love of of the riches of Christ, the height, depth, length, breadth, as Paul prays for the Ephesians um, to know that together as a community and, and to grow in your love uh, and grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Let's respond together.